You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. It's December in New York City. It's near the end of Hanukkah and shortly before Christmas, and the temperature outside is 55 degrees. It's rising to the mid-60s in a couple of days. Yesterday, I saw a cherry tree in bloom. Why does this put me in the mood to hear Dorothy Parker read by Cynthia Nixon? I don't know. It just feels right to hear from Parker, the accomplished poet, drama critic, and author, the screenwriter, book reviewer, member of the legendary Algonquin Roundtable. Brilliant Dorothy Parker known for so many things. Her wit, of course, her insight, her talent, her drinking, her ability to see straight through our most vulnerable places. She pulled no punches. She wrote fearlessly and for the ear. She once explained in a 1956 interview for the Paris Review that her stories told themselves through what people say, she said, and she continued, I haven't got a visual mind. I hear things. Often, What she heard and wrote about was an unraveling of sorts. Could that be the connection? The unraveling of any sense of our seasons? The fact that we can no longer depend on cold in December in the Northeast? I don't know. In any case, I want to share with you Parker's most famous story, Big Blonde, read by the sublime Cynthia Nixon, who, according to Audiophile, reads with sympathy and tender anguish. Big Blonde was recorded at Harper Audio for the Essential Parker CD and published by Harper Audio in 2006. Here now is Cynthia Nixon reading Dorothy Parker's Big Blonde. Hazel Morse was a large, fair woman of the type that incites some men when they use the word blonde to click their tongues and wag their heads roguishly. She prided herself upon her small feet and suffered for her vanity, boxing them in snub-toed, high-heeled slippers of the shortest, bearable size. The curious things about her were her hands, strange terminations to the flabby white arms splattered with pale tan spots, long, quivering hands with deep and convex nails. She should not have disfigured them with little jewels. She was not a woman given to recollections. At her middle thirties, her old days were a blurred and flickering sequence, an imperfect film dealing with the actions of strangers. In her twenties, after the deferred death of a hazy widowed mother, she had been employed as a model in a wholesale dress establishment. It was still the day of the big woman, and she was then prettily colored and erect and high-breasted. Her job was not onerous, and she met numbers of men and spent numbers of evenings with them, laughing at their jokes and telling them she loved their neckties. Men liked her, and she took it for granted that the liking of many men was a desirable thing. Popularity seemed to her to be worth all the work that had to be put into its achievement. Men liked you because you were fun, and when they liked you, they took you out, and there you were. So, and successfully, she was fun. She was a good sport. Men liked a good sport. No other form of diversion, simpler or more complicated, drew her attention. 
She never pondered if she might not be better occupied doing something else. Her ideas, or better, her acceptances, ran right along with those of the other substantially built blondes in whom she found her friends. When she had been working in the dress establishment some years, she met Herbie Morse. He was thin, quick, attractive, with shifting lines about his shiny brown eyes and a habit of fiercely biting at the skin around his fingernails. He drank largely. She found that entertaining. Her habitual greeting to him was an allusion to his state of the previous night. Oh, what a peach you had, she used to say through her easy laugh. I thought I'd die the way you kept asking the waiter to dance with you. She liked him immediately upon their meeting. She was enormously amused at his fast, slurred sentences, his interpolations of apt phrases from vaudeville acts and comic strips. She thrilled at the feel of his lean arm tucked firm beneath the sleeve of her coat. She wanted to touch the wet, flat surface of his hair. He was as promptly drawn to her. They were married six weeks after they had met. She was delighted at the idea of being a bride, coquetted with it, played upon it. Other offers of marriage she had had, and not a few of them, but it happened that they were all from stout, serious men who had visited the dress establishment as buyers, men from Des Moines and Houston and Chicago and, in her phrase, even funnier places. There was always something immensely comic to her in the thought of living somewhere else than New York. She could not regard as serious proposals that she share a Western residence. She wanted to be married. She was nearing 30 now, and she did not take the years well. She spread and softened, and her darkening hair turned her to inexpert dabblings with peroxide. There were times when she had little flashes of fear about her job, and she had had a couple of thousand evenings of being a good sport among her male acquaintances. She had come to be more conscientious than spontaneous about it. Herbie earned enough, and they took a little apartment far uptown. There was a mission-furnished dining room with a hanging central light globed in liver-colored glass. In the living room were an overstuffed suite, a Boston fern, and a reproduction of the Henner Magdalene with the red hair and the blue draperies. The bedroom was in gray enamel and old rose, with Herbie's photograph on Hazel's dressing table and Hazel's likeness on Herbie's chest of drawers. She cooked, and she was a good cook, and marketed and chatted with the delivery boys and the colored laundress. She loved the flat. She loved her life. She loved Herbie. In the first months of their marriage, she gave him all the passion she was ever to know. She had not realized how tired she was. It was a delight, a new game, a holiday, to give up being a good sport. If her head ached or her arches throbbed, she complained piteously, babyishly. If her mood was quiet, she did not talk. If tears came to her eyes, she let them fall. She fell readily into the habit of tears during the first year of her marriage. Even in her good sport days, she had been known to weep lavishly and disinterestedly on occasion. Her behavior at the theater was a standing joke. She could weep at anything in a play. Tiny garments, 
love both unrequited and mutual, seduction, purity, faithful servitors, wedlock, the triangle, there goes Hayes, her friends would say, watching her. She's off again. Wedded and relaxed, she poured her tears freely. To her who had laughed so much, crying was delicious. All sorrows became her sorrows. She was tenderness. She would cry long and softly over newspaper accounts of kidnapped babies, deserted wives, unemployed men, strayed cats, heroic dogs. Even when the paper was no longer before her, her mind revolved upon these things, and the drops slipped rhythmically over her plump cheeks. Honestly, she would say to Herbie, all the sadness there is in the world when you stop to think about it. Yeah, Herbie would say. She missed nobody. The old crowd, the people who had brought her and Herbie together, dropped from their lives, lingeringly at first. When she thought of this at all, it was only to consider it fitting. This was marriage. This was peace. But the thing was that Herbie was not amused. For a time, he had enjoyed being alone with her. He found the voluntary isolation novel and sweet. Then it palled with a ferocious suddenness. It was as if one night, sitting with her in the steam-heated living room, he would ask no more. And the next night, he was through and done with the whole thing. He became annoyed by her misty melancholies. At first, when he came home to find her softly tired and moody, he kissed her neck and patted her shoulder and begged her to tell her Herbie what was wrong. She loved that. But time slid by, and he found that there was never anything really personally the matter. Oh, for God's sake, he would say, crabbing again. All right, sit here and crab your head off. I'm going out. And he would slam out the flat and come back late and drunk. She was completely bewildered by what happened to their marriage. First they were lovers, and then, it seemed, without transition, they were enemies. She never understood it. There were longer and longer intervals between his leaving his office and his arrival at the apartment. She went through agonies of picturing him run over and bleeding, dead and covered with a sheet. Then she lost her fears for his safety and grew sullen and wounded. When a person wanted to be with a person, he came as soon as possible. She desperately wanted him to be with her. Her own hours only marked the time till he would come. It was often nearly nine o'clock before he came home to dinner. Always he had had many drinks, and their effect would die in him, leaving him loud and querulous and bristling for affronts. He was too nervous, he said, to sit and do nothing for an evening. He boasted, probably not in all truth, that he had never read a book in his life. What am I expected to do? Sit around this dump on my tail all night, he would ask rhetorically, and then he would slam out. She did not know what to do. She could not manage him. She could not meet him. She fought him furiously. A terrific domesticity had come upon her, and she would bite and scratch to guard it. She wanted what she called a nice home. She wanted a sober, tender husband, prompt at dinner, punctual at work. 
She wanted sweet, comforting evenings. The idea of intimacy with other men was terrible to her. The thought that Herbie might be seeking entertainment in other women set her frantic. It seemed to her that almost everything she read, novels from the drugstore lending library, magazine stories, women's pages in the papers, dealt with wives who lost their husband's love. She could bear those at that better than accounts of neat, companionable marriage and living happily ever after. She was frightened. Several times when Herbie came home in the evening, he found her determinedly dressed. She had had to alter those of her clothes that were not new to make them fasten, and rouged. Let's go wild tonight. What do you say? She would hail him. A person's got lots of time to hang around and do nothing when they're dead. So they would go out to chop houses and the less expensive cabarets. But it turned out badly. She could no longer find amusement in watching Herbie drink. She could not laugh at his whimsicalities. She was so tensely counting his indulgences. She was unable to keep back her remonstrances. Oh, come on, Herb. You've had enough, hadn't you? You'll feel something terrible in the morning. He would be immediately enraged. All right, crab, 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 crab. That was all she ever did. What a lousy sport she was. There would be scenes, and one or the other of them would rise and stalk out in fury. She could not recall the definite day that she started drinking herself. There was nothing separate about her days. Like drops upon a window pane, they ran together and trickled away. She had been married six months, then a year, then three years. She had never needed to drink formally. She could sit for most of a night at a table where the others were imbibing earnestly and never droop in looks or spirits, nor be bored by the doings of those about her. If she took a cocktail, it was so unusual as to cause twenty minutes or so of jocular comment. But now anguish was in her. Frequently after a quarrel, Herbie would stay out for the night, and she could not learn from him where the time had been spent. Her heart felt tight and sore in her breast, and her mind turned like an electric fan. She hated the taste of liquor. Gin, plain or in mixtures, made her promptly sick. After experiments, she found that scotch whiskey was best for her. She took it without water, because that was the quickest way to its effect. Herbie pressed it on her. He was glad to see her drink. They both felt it might restore her high spirits, and their good times together might again be possible. At a girl, he would approve her. Let's see you get boiled, baby. But it brought them no nearer. When she drank with him, there would be a little while of gaiety, and then, strangely without beginning, they would be in a wild quarrel. They would wake in the morning not sure what it had all been about, foggy as to what had been said and done, but each deeply injured and bitterly resentful. There would be days of vengeful silence. There had been a time when they had made up their quarrels, usually in bed. There would be kisses and little names and assurances of fresh starts. Oh, it's going to be great now, Herb. We'll have swell times. I was a crab. I guess I must have been tired, but everything's going to be swell. You'll see. Now there were no gentle reconciliations. They resumed friendly relations only in the brief magnanimity caused by liquor, 
before more liquor drew them into new battles. The scenes became more violent. There were shouted invectives and pushes, and sometimes sharp slaps. Once she had a black eye. Herbie was horrified next day at sight of it. He did not go to work. He followed her about, suggesting remedies and heaping dark blame on himself. But after they had had a few drinks to pull themselves together, she made so many wistful references to her bruise that he shouted at her and rushed out and was gone for two days. Each time he left the place in a rage, he threatened never to come back. She did not believe him, nor did she consider separation. Somewhere in her head or her heart was the lazy, nebulous hope that things would change, and she and Herbie settled suddenly into soothing married life. Here were her home, her furniture, her husband, her station. She summoned no alternatives. She could no longer bustle and potter. She had no more vicarious tears. The hot drops she shed were for herself. She walked ceaselessly about the rooms, her thoughts running mechanically round and round Herbie. In those days began the hatred of being alone that she was never to overcome. You could be by yourself when things were all right, but when you were blue, you got the howling horrors. She commenced drinking alone, little short drinks all through the day. It was only with Herbie that alcohol made her nervous and quick in offense. Alone it blurred sharp things for her. She lived in a haze of it. Her life took on a dreamlike quality. Nothing was astonishing. A Mrs. Martin moved into the flat across the hall. She was a great blonde woman of forty, a promise in looks of what Mrs. Morse was to be. They made acquaintance, quickly became inseparable. Mrs. Morse spent her days in the opposite apartment. They drank together to brace themselves after the drinks of the night before. She never confided her troubles about Herbie to Mrs. Martin. The subject was too bewildering to her to find comfort in talk. She let it be assumed that her husband's business kept him much away. It was not regarded as important. Husbands, as such, played but shadowy parts in Mrs. Martin's circle. Mrs. Martin had no visible spouse. You were left to decide for yourself whether he was or was not dead. She had an admirer, Joe, who came to see her almost nightly. Often he brought several friends with him. The boys, they were called. The boys were big, red, good-humored men, perhaps forty-five, perhaps fifty. Mrs. Morse was glad of invitations to join the parties. Herbie was scarcely ever at home at night now. If he did come home, she did not visit Mrs. Martin. An evening alone with Herbie meant inevitably a quarrel, yet she would stay with him. There was always her thin and wordless idea that maybe, this night, things would begin to be all right. The boys brought plenty of liquor along with them whenever they came to Mrs. Martin's. Drinking with them, Mrs. Morse became lively and good-natured and audacious. She was quickly popular. When she had drunk enough to cloud her most recent battle with Herbie, she was excited by their approbation. Crab, was she? Rotten sport, was she? Well, there were some that thought different. Ed was one of the boys. He lived in Utica, had his own business there, was the odd report. But he came to New York almost every week. He was married. He showed Mrs. Morse the then-current photographs of Junior and Sister, 
and she praised them abundantly and sincerely. Soon it was accepted by the others that Ed was her particular friend. He staked her when they all played poker, sat next to her and occasionally rubbed his knee against hers during the game. She was rather lucky. Frequently she went home with a $20 bill or a $10 bill or a handful of crumpled dollars. She was glad of them. Herbie was getting, in her words, something awful about money. To ask him for it brought an instant row. What the hell do you do with it, he would say. Shoot it all on scotch? I try to run this house halfway decent, she would retort. Never thought of that, did you? Oh, no. His lordship couldn't be bothered with that. Again, she could not find a definite day to fix the beginning of Ed's proprietorship. It became his custom to kiss her on the mouth when he came in, as well as for farewell, and he gave her little quick kisses of approval all through the evening. She liked this rather more than she disliked it. She never thought of his kisses when she was not with him. He would run his hand lingeringly over her back and shoulders. Some dizzy blonde, eh, he would say. Some doll. One afternoon she came home from Mrs. Martin's to find Herbie in the bedroom. He had been away for several nights, evidently on a prolonged drinking bout. His face was gray. His hands jerked as if they were on wires. On the bed were two old suitcases packed high. Only her photograph remained on his bureau, and the wide doors of his closet disclosed nothing but coat hangers. I'm blowing, he said. I'm through with the whole works. I got a job in Detroit. She sat down on the edge of the bed. She had drunk much the night before, and the four scotches she had had with Mrs. Martin had only increased her fogginess. Good job, she said. Oh, yeah, he said. Looks all right. He closed the suitcase with difficulty, swearing at it in whispers. There's some dough in the bank, he said. The bank book's in your top drawer. You can have the furniture and stuff. He looked at her and his forehead twitched. God damn it, I'm through, I'm telling you, he cried. I'm through. All right, all right, she said. I heard you, didn't I? She saw him as if he were at one end of a cannon and she at the other. Her head was beginning to ache bumpingly, and her voice had a dreary, tiresome tone. She could not have raised it. Like a drink before you go? she asked. Again he looked at her, and a corner of his mouth jerked up. Cockeyed again for a change, aren't you? he said. That's nice. Sure. Get a couple of shots, will you? She went to the pantry, mixed him a stiff highball, poured herself a couple of inches of whiskey and drank it. Then she gave herself another portion and brought the glasses into the bedroom. He had strapped both suitcases and had put on his hat and overcoat. He took his highball. Well, he said, and he gave a sudden uncertain laugh. Here's mud in your eye. Mud in your eye, she said. They drank. He put down his glass and took up the heavy suitcases. Got to get a train around six, he said. She followed him down the hall. There was a song, a song that Mrs. Martin played doggedly on the phonograph, running loudly through her mind. She had never liked the thing. Night and daytime, always playtime. Ain't we got fun? At the door, he put down the bags and faced her. Well, he said, well, take care of yourself. 
You'll be all right, will you? Oh, sure, she said. He opened the door, then came back to her, holding out his hand. Bye, Hayes, he said. Good luck to you. She took his hand and shook it. Pardon my wet glove, she said. When the door had closed behind him, she went back to the pantry. She was flushed and lively when she went into Mrs. Martin's that evening. The boys were there, Ed among them. He was glad to be in town, frisky and loud and full of jokes. But she spoke quietly to him for a minute. Her be blue today, she said, going to live out west. That's so, he said. He looked at her and played with the fountain pen clipped to his waistcoat pocket. Think he's gone for good, do you? he asked. Yeah, she said. I know he is. I know. Yeah. You gonna live on across the hall just the same, he said? Know what you're gonna do? Gee, I don't know, she said. I don't give much of a damn. Oh, come on, that's no way to talk, he told her. What you need? You need a little snifter. How about it? Yeah, she said. Just straight. She won $43 at poker. When the game broke up, Ed took her back to her apartment. Got a little kiss for me, he asked. He wrapped her in his big arms and kissed her violently. She was entirely passive. He held her away and looked at her. Little tight, honey, he asked anxiously. Not going to be sick, are you? Me? She said, I'm swell. When Ed left in the morning, he took her photograph with him. He said he wanted her picture to look at up in Utica. You can have that one on the bureau, she said. She put Herbie's picture in a drawer out of her sight. When she could look at it, she meant to tear it up. She was fairly successful in keeping her mind from racing around him. Whiskey slowed it for her. She was almost peaceful in her mist. She accepted her relationship with Ed without question or enthusiasm. When he was away, she seldom thought definitely of him. He was good to her. He gave her frequent presents and a regular allowance. She was even able to save. She did not plan ahead of any day, but her wants were few. And you might as well put money in the bank as have it lying around. When the lease of her apartment neared its end, it was Ed who suggested moving. His friendship with Mrs. Martin and Joe had become strained over a dispute at poker. A feud was impending. Let's get the hell out of here, Ed said. What I want you to have is a place near the Grand Central. Make it easier for me. So she took a little flat in the forties. A colored maid came in every day to clean and to make coffee for her. She was through with that housekeeping stuff, she said. And Ed, twenty years married to a passionately domestic woman, admired this romantic uselessness and felt doubly a man of the world in abetting it. The coffee was all she had until she went out to dinner, but alcohol kept her fat. Prohibition she regarded only as a basis for jokes. You could always get all you wanted. She was never noticeably drunk and seldom nearly sober. It required a larger daily allowance to keep her misty-minded. Too little, and she was achingly melancholy. Ed brought her to Jimmy's. He was proud, with the pride of the transient who would be mistaken for a native, in his knowledge of small, recent restaurants occupying the lower floors of shabby brownstone houses. 
places where, upon mentioning the name of an habitué friend, might be obtained strange whiskey and fresh gin in many of their ramifications. Jimmy's place was the favorite of his acquaintances. There, through Ed, Mrs. Morse met many men and women, formed quick friendships. The men often took her out when Ed was in Utica. He was proud of her popularity. She fell into the habit of going to Jimmy's alone when she had no engagement. She was certain to meet some people she knew and join them. It was a club for her friends, both men and women. The women at Jimmy's looked remarkably alike, and this was curious, for through feuds, removals, and opportunities of more profitable contacts, the personnel of the group changed constantly. Yet always the newcomers resembled those whom they replaced. They were all big women and stout, broad of shoulder and abundantly breasted, with faces thickly clothed in soft, high-colored flesh. They laughed loud and often, showing opaque and lusterless teeth like squares of crockery. There was about them the health of the big, yet a slight, unwholesome suggestion of stubborn preservation. They might have been thirty-six, or forty-five, or anywhere between. They composed their titles of their own first names with their husband's surnames, Mrs. Florence Miller, Mrs. Vera Riley, Mrs. Lillian Block. This gave, at the same time, the solidity of marriage and the glamour of freedom, yet only one or two were actually divorced. Most of them never referred to their dimmed spouses. Some, a shorter time separated, described them in terms of great biological interest. Several were mothers, each of an only child, a boy at school somewhere, or a girl being cared for by a grandmother. Often, well on toward morning, there would be displays of Kodak portraits and of tears. They were comfortable women, cordial and friendly, and irrepressibly matronly. Theirs was a quality of ease. Become fatalistic, especially about money matters, they unworried. Whenever their funds dropped alarmingly, a new donor appeared. This had always happened. The aim of each was to have one man, permanently, to pay all her bills, in return for which she would have immediately given up other admirers and probably would have become exceedingly fond of him. For the affections of all of them were, by now, unexacting, tranquil, and easily arranged. This end, however, grew increasingly difficult yearly. Mrs. Morse was regarded as fortunate. Ed had a good year, increased her allowance, and gave her a sealskin coat. But she had to be careful of her moods with him. He insisted upon gaiety. He would not listen to admissions of aches or weariness. Hey, listen, he would say. I got worries of my own, and plenty. Nobody wants to hear other people's troubles, sweetie. What you gotta do, you gotta be a sport and forget it, see? Well, slip us a little smile, then. That's my girl. She never had enough interest to quarrel with him as she had with Herbie, but she wanted the privilege of occasional admitted sadness. It was strange. The other women she saw did not have to fight their moods. There was Mrs. Florence Miller, who got regular crying jags, and the men sought only to cheer and comfort her. The others spent whole evenings in grieved recitals of worries and ills. Their escorts paid them deep sympathy. But she was instantly undesirable when she was low in spirits. Once at Jimmy's, when she could not make herself lively, Ed had walked out and left her. "'Why the hell don't you stay home and not go spoiling everybody's evening?' he had roared. 
Even her slightest acquaintances seemed irritated if she were not conspicuously light-hearted. "'What's the matter with you, anyway?' they would say. "'Be your age, why don't you? Have a little drink and snap out of it.' When her relationship with Ed had continued nearly three years, he moved to Florida to live. He hated leaving her. He gave her a large check and some shares of a sound stock, and his pale eyes were wet when he said goodbye. She did not miss him. He came to New York infrequently, perhaps two or three times a year, and hurried directly from the train to see her. She was always pleased to have him come, and never sorry to see him go. Charlie, an acquaintance of Ed's that she had met at Jimmy's, had long admired her. He had always made opportunities of touching her and leaning close to talk to her. He asked repeatedly of all their friends if they had ever heard such a fine laugh as she had. After Ed left, Charlie became the main figure in her life. She classified him and spoke of him as not so bad. There was nearly a year of Charlie. Then she divided her time between him and Sidney, another frequenter of Jimmy's. Then Charlie slipped away altogether. Sidney was a little, brightly dressed, clever Jew. She was perhaps nearest contentment with him. He amused her always. Her laughter was not forced. He admired her completely. Her softness and size delighted him. And he thought she was great, he often told her, because she kept gay and lively when she was drunk. Once I had a gal, he said, used to try and throw herself out of the window every time she got a can on. Jesus, he added feelingly. Then Sidney married a rich and watchful bride, and then there was Billy. No, after Sidney came Fred, then Billy. In her haze, she never recalled how men entered her life and left it. There were no surprises. She had no thrill at their advent, nor woe at their departure. She seemed to be always able to attract men. There was never another as rich as Ed, but they were all generous to her in their means. Once she had news of Herbie. She met Mrs. Martin dining at Jimmy's, and the old friendship was vigorously renewed. The still-admiring Joe, while on a business trip, had seen Herbie. He had settled in Chicago. He looked fine. He was living with some woman. Seemed to be crazy about her. Mrs. Morse had been drinking vastly that day. She took the news with mild interest, as one hearing of the sex peccadilloes of someone whose name is, after a moment's groping, familiar. "'Must be damn near seven years since I saw him,' she commented. "'Gee, seven years.'" More and more her days lost their individuality. She never knew dates, nor was sure of the day of the week. "'My God!' Was that a year ago, she would exclaim, when an event was recalled in conversation. She was tired so much of the time. Tired and blue. Almost everything could give her the blues. Those old horses she saw on Sixth Avenue, struggling and slipping along the car tracks, or standing at the curb, their heads dropped level with their worn knees. The tightly stored tears would squeeze from her eyes, as she teetered past on her aching feet in the stubby, champagne-colored slippers. The thought of death came and stayed with her and lent her a sort of drowsy cheer. It would be nice, nice and restful, to be dead. 
There was no settled, shocked moment when she first thought of killing herself. It seemed to her as if the idea had always been with her. She pounced upon all the accounts of suicides in the newspapers. There was an epidemic of self-killings, or maybe it was just that she searched for the stories of them so eagerly that she found many. To read of them roused reassurance in her. She felt a cozy solidarity with the big company of the voluntary dead. She slept, aided by whiskey, till deep into the afternoons, then lay abed, a bottle and glass at her hand, until it was time to dress and go out for dinner. She was beginning to feel, toward alcohol, a little puzzled distrust, as toward an old friend who has refused a simple favor. Whiskey could still soothe her for most of the time, but there were sudden, inexplicable moments when the cloud fell treacherously away from her, and she was sawed by the sorrow and bewilderment and nuisance of all living. She played voluptuously with the thought of cool, sleepy retreat. She had never been troubled by religious belief, and no vision of an afterlife intimidated her. She dreamed by day of never again putting on tight shoes, of never having to laugh and listen and admire, of never more being a good sport. Never. But how would you do it? It made her sick to think of jumping from heights. She could not stand a gun. At the theater, if one of the actors drew a revolver, she crammed her fingers into her ears and could not even look at the stage until after the shot had been fired. There was no gas in her flat. She looked at the bright blue veins in her slim wrists, a cut with a razor blade, and there you'd be. But it would hurt, hurt like hell, and there would be blood to see. Poison, something tasteless and quick and painless was the thing but they wouldn't sell it to you in drugstores because of the law. She had few other thoughts. There was a new man now, Art. He was short and fat and exacting and hard on her patience when he was drunk. But there had been only occasionals for some time before him, and she was glad of a little stability. Two, Art must be away for weeks at a stretch, selling silks, and that was restful. She was convincingly gay with him, though the effort shook her. The best sport in the world, he would murmur deep in her neck. The best sport in the world. One night when he had taken her to Jimmy's, she went into the dressing room with Mrs. Florence Miller. There, while designing curly mouths on their faces with lip rouge, they compared experiences of insomnia. Honestly, Mrs. Morse said, I wouldn't close an eye if I didn't go to bed full of scotch. I lie there and toss and turn and toss and turn. Blue. Does a person get blue lying awake that way? Say, listen, Hazel, Mrs. Miller said impressively. I'm telling you, I'd be awake for a year if I didn't take Veronal. That stuff makes you sleep like a fool. Isn't it poison or something? Mrs. Morse asked. Oh, you take too much and you're out for the count, said Mrs. Miller. I just take five grains. They come in tablets. I'd be scared to fool around with it but five grains and you cork off pretty. Can you get it anywhere? Mrs. Morse felt superbly Machiavellian. Get all you want in Jersey, said Mrs. Miller. They won't give it to you here without you have a doctor's prescription. Finished? We better go back and see what the boys are doing. That night, Art left Mrs. Morse at the door of her apartment. His mother was in town. 
Mrs. Morse was still sober, and it happened that there was no whiskey left in her cupboard. She lay in bed looking up at the black ceiling. She rose early for her and went to New Jersey. She had never taken the tube and did not understand it. So she went to the Pennsylvania station and bought a railroad ticket to Newark. She thought of nothing in particular on the trip out. She looked at the uninspired hats of the women about her and gazed through the smeared window at the flat, gritty scene. In Newark, in the first drugstore she came to, she asked for a tin of talcum powder, a nail brush, and a box of Veronal tablets. The powder and the brush were to make the hypnotic seem almost a casual need. The clerk was entirely unconcerned. We only keep them in bottles, he said, and wrapped up for her a little glass vial containing ten white tablets stacked one on another. She went to another drugstore and bought a face cloth, an orange wood stick, and Veronal tablets. The clerk was also uninterested. Well, I guess I got enough to kill an ox, she thought, and went back to the station. At home, she put the little vials in the drawer of her dressing table and stood looking at them with a dreamy tenderness. There they are. God bless them, she said, and she kissed her fingertip and touched each bottle. The colored maid was busy in the living room. Hey, Nettie, Mrs. Morse called. Be an angel, will you? Run around to Jimmy's and get me a quart of scotch. She hummed while she awaited the girl's return. During the next few days, whiskey ministered to her as tenderly as it had done when she first turned to its aid. Alone, she was soothed and vague. At Jimmy's, she was the gayest of the groups. Art was delighted with her. Then one night, she had an appointment to meet Art at Jimmy's for an early dinner. He was to leave afterward on a business excursion, to be away for a week. Mrs. Morse had been drinking all the afternoon. While she dressed to go out, she felt herself rising pleasurably from drowsiness to high spirits. But as she came out into the street, the effects of the whiskey deserted her completely, and she was filled with a slow, grinding wretchedness so horrible that she stood swaying on the pavement, unable for a moment to move forward. It was a gray night with spurts of mean, thin snow, and the streets shone with dark ice. As she slowly crossed Sixth Avenue, consciously dragging one foot past the other, a big scarred horse pulling a rickety express wagon crashed to his knees before her. The driver swore and screamed and lashed the beast insanely, bringing the whip back over his shoulder for every blow, while the horse struggled to get a footing on the slippery asphalt. A group gathered and watched with interest. Art was waiting when Mrs. Morse reached Jimmy's. "'What's the matter with you, for God's sake?' was his greeting to her. "'I saw a horse,' she said. "'Gee, I... a person... feels sorry for horses. I... it isn't just horses. Everything's kind of terrible, isn't it? I can't help getting sunk.' "'Ah, sunk me, I,' he said. "'What's the idea of all the belly aching? What have you got to be sunk about?' I can't help it, she said. Ah, oh, help it me, I, he said. Pull yourself together, will you? Come on and sit down and take that face off you. She drank industriously, and she tried hard, but she could not overcome her melancholy. Others joined them and commented on her gloom, 
and she could do no more for them than smile weakly. She made little dabs at her eyes with her handkerchief, trying to time her movements so they would be unnoticed, but several times Art caught her and scowled and shifted impatiently in his chair. When it was time for him to go to his train, she said she would leave, too, and go home. And not a bad idea, either, he said. See if you can't sleep yourself out of it. I'll see you Thursday. For God's sake, try and cheer up by then, will you? Yeah, she said. I will. In her bedroom, she undressed with a tense speed, wholly unlike her usual slow uncertainty. She put on her nightgown, took off her hairnet, and passed the comb quickly through her dry, very-colored hair. Then she took the two little vials from the drawer and carried them into the bathroom. The splintering misery had gone from her, and she felt the quick excitement of one who is about to receive an anticipated gift. She uncorked the vials, filled a glass with water, and stood before the mirror, a tablet between her fingers. Suddenly she bowed graciously to her reflection and raised the glass to it. Well, here's mud in your eye, she said. The tablets were unpleasant to take, dry and powdery, and sticking obstinately halfway down her throat. It took her a long time to swallow all twenty of them. She stood watching her reflection with deep, impersonal interest, studying the movements of the gulping throat. Once more she spoke aloud. For God's sake, try and cheer up by Thursday, will you? she said. Well, you know what he can do. He and the whole lot of them. She had no idea how quickly to expect effect from the Veronal. When she had taken the last tablet, she stood uncertainly, wondering, still with a courteous, vicarious interest, if death would strike her down then and there. She felt in no way strange, save for a slight stirring of sickness from the effort of swallowing the tablets, nor did her reflected face look at all different. It would not be immediate then. It might even take an hour or so. She stretched her arms high and gave a vast yawn. Guess I'll go to bed, she said. Gee, I'm nearly dead. That struck her as comic, and she turned out the bathroom light and went in and laid herself down in her bed, chuckling softly all the time. Gee, I'm nearly dead, she quoted. That's a hot one. Nettie, the colored maid, came in late the next afternoon to clean the apartment and found Mrs. Morse in her bed. But then that was not unusual. Usually, though, the sounds of cleaning waked her, and she did not like to wake up. Nettie, an agreeable girl, had learned to move softly about her work. But when she had done the living room and stolen in to tidy the little square bedroom, she could not avoid a tiny clatter as she arranged the objects on the dressing table. Instinctively, she glanced over her shoulder at the sleeper, and without warning, a sickly uneasiness crept over her. She came to the bed and stared down at the woman lying there. Mrs. Morse lay on her back, one flabby white arm flung up, the wrist against her forehead. Her stiff hair hung untenderly along her face. The bed covers were pushed down, exposing a deep square of soft neck and a pink nightgown its fabric worn uneven by many launderings. 
Her great breasts, freed from their tight confiner, sagged beneath her armpits. Now and then she made knotted, snoring sounds, and from the corner of her opened mouth to the blurred turn of her jaw ran a lane of crusted spittle. "'Miss Morse,' Nettie called. "'Oh, Miss Morse, it's terrible late!' Mrs. Morse made no move. "'Miss Morse,' said Nettie. "'Look, Miss Morse, how am I going to get this bed made?' Panic sprang upon the girl. She shook the woman's hot shoulder. "'Oh, wake up, will you?' she whined. "'Oh, please wake up!' Suddenly the girl turned and ran out in the hall to the elevator door, keeping her thumb firm on the black, shiny button until the elderly car and its Negro attendant stood before her. She poured a jumble of words over the boy and led him back to the apartment. He tiptoed creakingly in to the bedside, first gingerly, then so lustily that he left marks in the soft flesh he prodded the unconscious woman. Hey there, he cried, and listened intently, as for an echo. Jeez, out like a light, he commented. At his interest in the spectacle, Nettie's panic left her. Importance was big in both of them. They talked in quick, unfinished whispers, and it was the boy's suggestion that he fetch the young doctor who lived on the ground floor. Nettie hurried along with him. They looked forward to the lime-lit moment of breaking their news of something untoward, something pleasurably unpleasant. Mrs. Morse had become the medium of drama. With no ill wish to her, they hoped that her state was serious, that she would not let them down by being awake and normal on their return. A little fear of this determined them to make the most to the doctor of her present condition. Matter of life and death returned to Nettie from her thin store of reading. She considered startling the doctor with the phrase. The doctor was in, and none too pleased at interruption. He wore a yellow and blue striped dressing gown, and he was lying on his sofa laughing with a dark girl, her face scaly with inexpensive powder, who perched on the arm. Half-emptied highball glasses stood beside them, and her coat and hat were neatly hung up with the comfortable implication of a long stay. Always something, the doctor grumbled. Couldn't let anybody alone after a hard day. But he put some bottles and instruments into a case, changed his dressing gown for his coat, and started out with the Negroes. Snap it up there, big boy, the girl called after him. Don't be all night. The doctor strode loudly into Mrs. Morse's flat, and on to the bedroom, Nettie and the boy right behind him. Mrs. Morse had not moved. Her sleep was as deep, but soundless now. The doctor looked sharply at her, then plunged his thumbs into the lidded pits above her eyeballs and threw his weight upon them. A high, sickened cry broke from Nettie. "'Look like he trying to push her right on through the bed,' said the boy. He chuckled. Mrs. Morse gave no sign under the pressure, Abruptly, the doctor abandoned it, and with one quick movement swept the covers down to the foot of the bed. With another, he flung her nightgown back and lifted the thick white legs, cross-hatched with blocks of tiny iris-colored veins. He pinched them repeatedly with long, cruel nips back of the knees. She did not awaken. "'What's she been drinking?' he asked Nettie over his shoulder. With the certain celerity of one who knows just where to lay hands on a thing, Nettie went into the bathroom 
bound for the cupboard where Mrs. Morse kept her whiskey. But she stopped at the sight of the two vials, with their red and white labels lying before the mirror. She brought them to the doctor. Oh, for Lord Almighty's sweet sake, he said. He dropped Mrs. Morse's legs and pushed them impatiently across the bed. What did she want to go taking that tripe for? Rotten yellow trick, that's what a thing like that is. Now we'll have to pump her out and all that stuff. Nuisance, a thing like that is. That's what it amounts to. Here, George, take me down in the elevator. You wait here, maid. She won't do anything. She won't die on me, will she? cried Nettie. No, said the doctor. God, no. You couldn't kill her with an axe. After two days, Mrs. Morse came back to consciousness, dazed at first, then with a comprehension that brought with it the slow, saturating wretchedness. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, she moaned. And tears for herself and for life striped her cheeks. Nettie came in at the sound. For two days she had done the ugly, incessant tasks in the nursing of the unconscious. For two nights she had caught broken bits of sleep on the living room couch. She looked coldly at the big, blown woman in the bed. "'What you been trying to do, Miss Morse?' she said. "'What kind of work is that, taking all that stuff?' "'Oh, Lord,' moaned Mrs. Morse again. And she tried to cover her eyes with her arms, but the joints felt stiff and brittle, and she cried out at their ache. "'That's no way to act, taking them pills,' said Nettie. "'You can thank your stars you're here at all. "'How you feel now?' Oh, I feel great, said Mrs. Morse. Swell, I feel. Her hot, painful tears fell as if they would never stop. That's no way to take on crying like that, Nettie said. After what you done? The doctor, he says he could have you arrested doing a thing like that. He was fit to be tied here. Why couldn't he let me alone, wailed Mrs. Morse. Why the hell couldn't he have? That's terrible, Miss Morse, swearing and talking like that, said Nettie. After what people done for you? Here I am, had no sleep at all for two nights and had to give up going out to my other ladies. Oh, I'm sorry, Nettie, she said. You're a peach. I'm sorry I've given you so much trouble I couldn't help it. I just got sunk. Didn't you ever feel like doing it, when everything looks just lousy to you? I wouldn't think of no such thing, declared Nettie. You gotta cheer up. That's what you gotta do. Everybody's got their troubles. Yeah, said Mrs. Morse. I know. Come a pretty picture card for you, Nettie said. Maybe that'll cheer you up. She handed Mrs. Morse a postcard. Mrs. Morse had to cover one eye with her hand in order to read the message. Her eyes were not yet focusing correctly. It was from Art. On the back of a view of the Detroit Athletic Club, he had written, Greeting and salutations. Hope you have lost that gloom. Cheer up and don't take any rubber nickels. See you on Thursday. She dropped the card to the floor. Misery crushed her as if she were between great smooth stones. There passed before her a slow, slow pageant of days spent lying in her flat, of evenings at Jimmy's being a good sport, making herself laugh and coo at art and other arts. 
She saw a long parade of weary horses and shivering beggars and all beaten, driven, stumbling things. Her feet throbbed as if she had crammed them into the stubby, champagne-colored slippers. Her heart seemed to swell and harden. Nettie, she cried, for heaven's sake, pour me a drink, will ya? The maid looked doubtful. Now you know, Miss Morse, she said. You been near dead. I don't know if the doctor, he let you drink nothing yet. Oh, never mind him, she said. You get me one and bring in the bottle. Take one yourself. Well, said Nettie. She poured them each a drink, deferentially leaving hers in the bathroom to be taken in solitude, and brought Mrs. Morse's glass into her. Mrs. Morse looked into the liquor and shuddered back from its odor. Maybe it would help. Maybe, when you had been knocked cold for a few days, your very first drink would give you a lift. Maybe whiskey would be her friend again. She prayed without addressing a god, without knowing a god. Oh, please, please, let her be able to get drunk. Please keep her always drunk. She lifted the glass. Thanks, Nettie, she said. Here's mud in your eye. The maid giggled. That's the way, Miss Morse, she said. You cheer up now. Yeah, said Mrs. Morse. Sure. Thank you for listening. If you're traveling for the holidays and looking to hear more about great books, be sure to subscribe to the Harper Audio Presents podcast and sign up for our newsletter or like us on Facebook. We'll be back next week with our annual Christmas podcast featuring the recording of Dylan Thomas's A Child's Christmas in Wales. You won't want to miss it. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.